Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, this two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, January 15th, we are studying Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. For the first time in St. Matthew's Gospel, we meet Jesus as a grown man, and he comes to John for one of the most significant events of his ministry, his baptism. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor David Vandercook. Pastor Vandercook serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumel, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, welcome back to Sharper Iron. Good to be with you. So, Pastor Vandercook, as we begin to dig into these verses from Matthew chapter 3, give us some context. We met John yesterday in Matthew's Gospel. What do we need to know from the surrounding context that will help us understand Jesus' baptism as Matthew records it? Well, yeah, um, we've got, you know, Matthew's Gospel has, you know, roughly a a 30-year gap or so from the time you have the um, return to Nazareth of Mary, Joseph, and and Jesus, I guess Jesus' first trip to Nazareth. And then, uh, as you said yesterday, I'll discuss the uh, ministry of John the Baptist. This comes right on the heels of that. Uh, And, you know, John the Baptist's ministry is introduced as, um, you know, he preaches repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and he's baptizing people there at the Jordan River. And so, uh, naturally, the next thing that comes is we now segue into Jesus. Matthew doesn't spend much time, obviously, on uh, on John the Baptist, other than uh, his role in um, preparing the way for uh, the coming Messiah, uh, and then we we turn our attention to Jesus here in his uh, in his baptism. Um, so the uh, uh, yeah we and and of course the the, the narrative that is uh, that is not here we don't have in Matthew's gospel the encounter between. Uh, the preborn Jesus and the preborn Luke, both still in their mother's wombs that we have in Luke. Uh, so here, this is our first introduction to John the Baptist, and John the Baptist's first introduction to Jesus, at least in the book of Matthew. Uh, so yeah, then this uh, after this, we we turn our attention, uh, you know, as I, as I said, to uh, Jesus and his ministry alone, kind of leaving. Uh, John the Baptist makes a couple of appearances later on, but uh, kind of in the rearview mirror, uh, so to speak. Hmm. Is it fair to say that that Jesus' baptism is the beginning of his ministry? I mean, how how should we characterize this in terms of its place within the gospel of Matthew and Jesus' ministry as a whole? Well, I think certainly that, yeah, I I think it is certainly fair, definitely, to say that this is the start of his ministry. Uh, Prior to this, all we have are the infancy uh, narratives of Jesus, uh, and, and really... You know, like I said, you have that isolated incident that we find in Luke of of Jesus, um, uh, you know, the boy Jesus in the temple at 12 years old. Um, but uh, uh, you know, aside from that, it really, there's no there's no uh, preaching or teaching per se going going on there with Jesus. He's only uh, discussing with those in the temple uh, the word of God. But uh, but here, yeah, this is really where the rubber kind of hits the road. Um, you don't have Jesus necessarily uh, preaching yet, but you do have him being driven into the wilderness, and then immediately after that, after he leaves the wilderness, then you do have that happening. So yes, I, you know, I would say that this is definitely the entrance uh, of Jesus into the ministry, and um, and really his, uh, you know, as we talk about and we enter into the season of Epiphany, his further revealing as uh, the Son of God sent to be the Savior of the world. Hmm. Yeah, this is the this is always the text for that first Sunday after the Epiphany, observed as the baptism of our Lord. And and you'll see in many of what are labeled Epiphany hymns in our hymnal, there is often a verse or the whole hymn is about the baptism of our Lord. Here we see him revealed yet again. And so that's something we should keep in mind as we look through the text as we as we study it this morning. Let me go ahead and read it for us. This again is Matthew chapter three, verses thirteen through seventeen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, 
and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. That's Matthew's account of Jesus' baptism, Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Pastor Vanderkirk, as we get going into the text, one of the things that stands out immediately in verse 13 is we encounter that name Jesus, and it's been a while since we've seen that within Matthew's gospel. Why is that important? Well, yeah, uh, Matthew 2, verse 1, in fact, is the last time that we saw the name Jesus, and that, of course, was at the beginning of uh, where we we enter into the narrative about the visit of the Magi. And, you know, it's it's not that Jesus is absent from the text, but there is that name Jesus, which means Yahweh or the Lord saves, uh, which brings us back to that emphasis of this is why the Messiah comes. He comes to save people from their sins. And we're going to see the unfolding of that now as we go from the baptism of Jesus and move forward. This is why Jesus came. He came to be the Savior. What about the location of all this? Jesus comes from Galilee. That's in the north. As as you said, he's been living in Nazareth. We learned that at the end of chapter 2. He comes from Galilee to the Jordan. What's the significance of the geography here? Yeah, the Jordan River is all over the place in the scriptures. Uh, we, we first encounter it with the Israelites. It's the border to the promised land. I mean, I suppose we encountered even before that, but really that's where it becomes really significant is when the Israelites at the end of their wilderness wanderings, they enter into the promised land in much the same way that God divided the Red Sea so that they may cross over on dry dry ground. He does the same thing for uh, Joshua and the Israelites as they cross over the Jordan River, and it's their entrance into the promised land. Um, And, you know, in addition to that, it's also the, the region where, Uh, Elijah and Elisha, also significant in those two narratives of those two prophets. Uh, It's a place where um, Elijah was taken up by a chariot of fire into heaven, where Elisha's ministry as Elijah's successor begins. Uh, And then also the the narrative of uh, the healing of Naaman. Uh, Naaman, who was the leper from Syria, was sent by Elisha to go and uh, dip himself in the Jordan River seven times to be cleansed of his um, uh, of his leprosy. And that narrative, of course, also is another one that we use often to discuss uh, holy baptism, um, uh, looking there. So, so, yeah, the Jordan River. And this is where, you know, uh, John the Baptist is doing his baptizing, of course. So that's why Jesus goes there. But the fact that it's at the Jordan, uh, it, it, it's the, the entrance, the, the border into the promised land. And for the people of Israel, it was the entrance into the land flowing with milk and honey. Uh, for us, uh, holy baptism serves as the entrance into uh, salvation, as uh, you know, we become God's children in our baptism. Uh, and so we also, the, 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 the baptismal font becomes a sort of Jordan River for us in that way. Mm-hmm. So in, in thinking of, of Jesus' baptism then, is... <sighs> I don't, I don't want to say he's reenacting these things. That's maybe not exactly the right way to think about it. But is he fulfilling some of those events? The, for example, the entrance of Israel into the promised land with Joshua, or the, the succession from Elijah to Elisha, especially thinking with John being Elijah to his, who is to come, is there a, a fulfillment of the Old Testament then going on in, in that sort of, not a reenactment, but a, all that stuff that was happening in Old Testament was pointing forward to this moment? Is that, I mean, is that happening there? Well, yeah, I think in a, in a sense you do have it in, you know, Jesus ministry as a whole is fulfilling the old Testament. And certainly this is a portion of it. And that's going to come out as we, as we move forward through this, looking at Jesus rationale for why he should be baptized by John. Uh, And that's really going to come into play more as we go through the text here. So, Jesus comes to John at the Jordan River where he's been baptizing, and John objects, it seems. What's what's going on with John? What's his problem telling Jesus, no, no, we're not going to do this? 
Yeah, well, it's clear as we look at the verses that preceded this, uh, that you all discussed previously on the program, that John's baptism, the purpose of it, the purpose of John's ministry is that he's preaching repentance. And the purpose of baptism has this tie into the forgiveness of sins. And these are two things that don't apply to Jesus. Jesus doesn't need to repent of anything. Jesus doesn't need the forgiveness of sins. It doesn't seem that Jesus needs what John is offering. And so, yeah, John gives this response, and there's a couple of emphatic pronouns in there, in much the same way that when we look at Jesus' I am statements in John, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and life, you know, I am the I am the door, I am the gate, and so forth. There's these ego a me, as we say, you know, in the Greek, where it has that that pronoun that doesn't really isn't really necessary in the language. And the same is true here when John is speaking. He says, I need to be baptized by you. And those pronouns are added for emphasis that John is saying, I, I, you don't need to be baptized by me. I'm the one that needs what you are coming to offer. And to be honest, he's not really wrong. Uh, this this is what John needs. John needs to be ministered to by Jesus. Everybody needs to be ministered to by Jesus. But uh, but yeah, so uh, you know, John John almost seems kind of uh, confused as to why are you here, Jesus? Why why are you doing? Why are you coming to me? Uh, it should be the other way around. Hmm. So every, everyone needs to be ministered to by Jesus. I think that's a, a helpful thing to say as we consider what Jesus' response is. John knows that he needs something from Jesus, but perhaps he doesn't know exactly what he needs from Jesus. And so we need to to dig into what Jesus answers John. In verse 15, he says, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And there's plenty there to talk about kind of in, in each spot. So let it be so now. It sounds like Jesus is it's almost like he's talking in some sort of temporary way that, that it's going to happen like this right now, but it's not always going to be this. What, what does that first phrase of Jesus's mean? Yeah. The, the church fathers talk this way too. Uh, uh, John Chrysostom, you know, he said um, he didn't, he didn't just say uh, let it be so, but he said, let it be so now. And that word is, is pretty important uh, that we say it's now. And there is kind of a temporary type uh, thing that's being conveyed there, and that he's saying, hey, there is going to be the time when you're going to see me the way you want to see me. You know, John the Baptist had just talked about how Jesus is going to come, he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, you know, and he's got this idea of a of a conquering Jesus that's it's going to, and of course, that's what Jesus comes to do, is to uh, conquer sin, death, and the devil for us, uh, and to bring, bring in the, the reign of God, uh, as, as Matthew says over and over again. And so, yeah, John, John is expecting that when Jesus comes, but maybe he's not exactly expecting the way in which Jesus starts this whole thing. Uh, it, and so it seems like Jesus is kind of making a concession here and saying, let's just ha- let it be so for now. This is the way it's going to be right now. Uh, you know, and later on, when you get to um, uh, later on in Matthew, in chapter 11, John seems like he doesn't still have that whole picture together of what Jesus is supposed to be like. And sometimes that's uh, that's kind of counterintuitive to us to look to uh, one of the, the great heroes of the faith, like John the Baptist, and say that maybe they didn't have it all together, maybe they didn't have it all straight. But it seems like that very well might have been the case with John, is that he had an understanding in his head. He had a picture in his head of what the Messiah was going to be, what Jesus was going to be like, how his ministry was going to unfold, and the way in which it unfolds before his eyes doesn't match what was in his head beforehand. Um, And it's not that John's wrong. It's just that the picture that he has in his mind is not coming to fruition just yet. And so, yeah, it seems like Jesus is saying, this is the way it's going to be for now. What you're looking for for the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and, and of fire, that's coming, but not yet. Is it is it something to the similar to the way we talk that right now the the kingdom is ours by faith and not by sight? And and it's as if John is wanting the kingdom by sight right now, and Jesus is saying that's coming right now. The kingdom is going to come to you by faith, and it's going to come through this 
this baptism that I'm going to undergo right now. Is that is that a, a similar way of, of thinking? Yeah, I think there's a I think there is a nice correlation you can make there between the idea of the now and not yet that we often talk about uh, for us Christians now that we yeah we live by faith and not by sight we look forward to and we 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 are um, we have faith in that which is to come uh, but that doesn't always reflect itself or you know the the glory of God does not always reveal itself uh, in this life and in our own lives but we know and we look forward to the life of the world to come. And so the the let it be so now what what John is to allow right now what Jesus wants to happen right now is not that the kingdom comes in the way that John has just preached in terms of the winnowing fork and the the unquenchable fire but rather that the the kingdom would come through the suffering that Jesus is about to undergo during his his earthly ministry is that the concession that that Jesus is talking about Yes, yeah, I, I would, I would say so. I think that's right. That uh, he is, um, uh, yeah, and, and that's that's what Jesus is being baptized into. Is is not you know when he's being baptized into, it's part of his, you know, in, in his state of humiliation, what he suffers as man here, um, and uh, and and you know, it's it's of course exemplary of the uh, of the life of the Christian in general that this is what what it will be. Hmm. You, you talked about Jesus' state of humiliation. Could you, and that's a that's a term that at least I know I use in my teaching of the Catechism. I talk about Jesus' state of humiliation and Jesus' state of exaltation. Could you could you define those for us as as we? I think they're helpful terms, and I think they apply here. Could you define what what we're talking about there, Pastor Vanderkirk? Sure. Yeah, the state of humiliation is when Jesus, as a man. Uh, is not using or not not always using or not fully using his divine power. Uh, and so, you know, the state of humiliation begins um, when Jesus becomes flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Um, not that being a man is humiliating or degrading, but rather that the suffering that comes along with being in the flesh uh, is that. And so, you know, when we talk about his humiliation, you can kind of look at it in the Apostles' Creed and see where the state of humiliation begins and ends, uh, and the state of humiliation ends with his death on the cross. On the other hand, on the other hand, the um, uh, the state of exaltation is when Christ, still in the flesh, now uh, fully and always is using his divine uh, powers and abilities. Uh, and you know, as as I like to tell. Uh, kids, as I'm teaching them, sometimes Jesus, Jesus is uh, its like the switch is on all the time now, uh, and he's able to do things that um, ordinary human beings cannot do because he's not an ordinary human being. He's—he's he's the God Man. He's fully God and fully man, and so the exalted uh, Christ uh, is not bound by time and space and so forth. And uh, but yeah, it's—it's it's the you know, and to look at the Apostles' Creed again. Uh, the exaltation begins with the descent into hell, uh, and then and then forward from there. Right. So that he's he's always doing these. Not only is he always able to, but he's always doing those things according to his divine power. So when he wants to, you know, show up to his apostles on the night of Easter, he doesn't knock on the door and have them open it. He simply appears in the room, just as an example of that. Right. But as you as you pointed out here, he is he is in a state of humiliation. He is still fully God and fully man, but he doesn't always act like it. And and here is one of those cases where he does not make use of his divine power for the sake of of our salvation. So he says to John, let it be so now. And he continues for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And there's there's a couple of things going on in that second half of Jesus' statement. They're they're related. I think it's hard to talk about one without the other. One one is it what does it mean that it is fitting for us? What what is John's role in this? Jesus doesn't say it's fitting for me to do this. And then what is and tied together with that, I think is well, what does it mean that they are fulfilling all righteousness? Help us into that second half of Jesus' statement, Pastor Vandercook. Yeah, well, yeah, it's it's fitting. Yeah, it, it is noteworthy that Jesus says it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness instead of saying me. It's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness, uh, because it shows us that John is an active participant here in God's uh, God's plan for salvation, as the one who prepares the way for Christ, 
uh, as the one who will serve the role as the one baptizing uh, Christ here uh, through his preaching and, and teaching ministry. So uh, John is active in this whole thing. Uh, and the other thing is that it, it helps us understand um, what it means for what whose righteousness are we talking about and, and what righteousness is Christ fulfilling here? Because if it's it's fitting for me to fulfill all righteousness, we could understand that as um, human righteousness, that is, our active um, uh, fulfillment of the law, which Jesus does, of course. Uh, he does fulfill the law uh, perfectly, but that's not really what the righteousness here is referring to, the, the act of actually keeping the commandments and so forth. Uh, and that understanding of us fulfilling all righteousness um, prevents that misunderstanding, because if it were me fulfilling all righteousness, then you might be able to understand it that way and say that, well, that means that Jesus is going to keep the commandments, which is true. He's going to do that. But that's not really the point of this particular section. Um, here we're talking about God's righteousness, not man's righteousness. Uh, we see this throughout the Old Testament, um, that uh, uh, we see these things referring to God's saving acts, God's righteousness. Uh, you know, Isaiah 51 talks about how my, is God speaking, he says, my righteousness draws near, my salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. So, you know, it's clear there that the, the term righteousness is talking about salvation, God's salvation, God's work uh, among his people. Uh, Psalm 71 talks about this too, uh, where the psalmist prays, in your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me, incline your ear to me and save me. Uh, again, referring to the salvation that God brings. So yeah, the righteousness here that Christ speaks of uh, is not human activity or human righteousness, but rather it's the righteousness of God, God's act of salvation on his people. The other thing that would prevent us from understanding it as, um, you know, this idea of obedience to God's law is the fact that nowhere in the Old Testament is baptism commanded. So you really can't make that jump either and say that the actual act of baptizing is an act of obedience to God, uh, but rather that um, this is all part of God's plan of salvation that's, that's starting to unfold. So just to, to dwell on that point a little bit, this use of, of the word righteousness here, what the understanding that we're talking about is very similar to what, what Luther talks about in his, in his so-called tower experience, where he understands what the righteousness of God in Romans chapter 1 is, that, that when we're talking about the righteousness of God there in Romans 1 and, and also here in Matthew 3, it's not the righteousness that God requires of humanity, say, in the Ten Commandments, but rather this is the righteousness that he gives to us because of what Christ has done. Is that the same understanding that we're talking about here? Yes, I think it is, yep. So then that that then would lead into Jesus' baptism in terms of its preaching for us today and the, the use of it that we make in our lives as Christians. Jesus isn't baptized as an example to us, is he? I mean, is that, does that question, I've heard it preached that way. Hopefully, I, I hope not in, in Lutheran circles, <laughs> but, but I've heard it preached that way, that Jesus was yeah. baptized as an example to us. But it sounds like, from what you've said, that that's not what's going on here. Yeah, I mean, certainly, of course, the, the command to baptize will come later from Jesus, and there are connections, definitely connections to make to Christian baptism, uh, from what's going on here, but that that command hasn't come forth from Jesus yet. Um, you know that that doesn't come until the end of Matthew's gospel that we have the institution of holy baptism uh, as as a sacrament. Um, there there can be that you know obviously there and there's the, the the problem with I mean there's there's probably more than one problem but the problem with uh, making that jump and saying that it is this is this is an example that we're to follow uh, again is that. Uh, we are not Jesus, first of all. Uh, you know, he comes as one who doesn't need what we need in baptism. He doesn't need forgiveness of sins. We need forgiveness of sins. Um, you know, and of course, that that further understanding of uh, uh, what baptism is and what it does is obscured by that. 
um, you know, we get a fuller understanding of what what baptism is instituted for us in the church as we look forward from, you know, like the institution of holy baptism at the end of Matthew 28, and then the other baptismal uh, passages that we encounter in uh, Paul's uh, Paul's letters, as well as uh, you know, First Peter 3:21, baptism now saves you. Uh, but that's all later on. We haven't gotten there yet, and so to to use this as um, as simply an example text, that, yeah, I think that's a dangerous move to make. Um, but nonetheless, it does have application for Christian baptism. Yes, it, it does. And I think we're going to have to dig into some of those applications on the other side of the break. We're, you're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFO. We're talking about Jesus' baptism as it's recorded at the end of Matthew chapter 3. We're going to take a short break right now, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Wednesday, January 15th, as we are studying Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17, with Pastor David Vandercook of Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and Shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas. Pastor Vandercook, prior to the break, we had discussed Jesus coming to John, John's objection, but Jesus' answer that this is a part of his work for our salvation. Let it be so now. We are fulfilling all righteousness. We are here enacting what God has promised from the Old Testament. This is the Lord working out his plan of salvation. John's role is to baptize Jesus. And so John John consents. He lets lets it happen. And then in verse 16, we, we get Jesus' actual baptism. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And, and we don't have to spend too much time on this, Pastor Vandercook, but, but in connection with what we were talking about prior to the break concerning Jesus' baptism, whether it's example or not, here it, it seems that perhaps Jesus was immersed. So do Christians need to be immersed in their baptism? Is this another example that Jesus is setting, or is, is maybe that the wrong question to ask? <laughs> well, yeah, first of all, that, that word for baptism, talk about that briefly, uh, baptizo in the Greek, uh, simply means the application of water. There are other places in the scriptures that talk about baptizing, although we wouldn't use that word, baptizing uh, a dining couch or something like that. Well, it's pretty clear that uh, when folks were doing the ceremonial cleanings of their furniture, uh, or whatever whatever the, the scenario was, they weren't actually dunking the whole thing in water. Uh, that would probably destroy the piece of furniture, first of all, but it also uh, is just not very practical. So it's un- so first of all, the word does not necessarily imply uh, a complete immersion in water. But also where it says there Jesus came up out of the water, uh, it does make it, it can on, on the one hand sound like somebody was completely under the water, uh, but it also could be that he just walked out of the river much of the year anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm right about this. The Jordan River is not exactly a deep river. Uh, you know, we've got the we've got the Arkansas River here, uh, not too far from where I live, and uh, they run big barges through there. And, and yeah, that river uh, you could easily drown in. It's it's plenty deep. But uh, uh, the Jordan River, um, it would be difficult. Um, for much of the year, if I remember correctly from what I've heard, to even get somebody completely under that water. Um, so, you know, was Jesus immersed? I suppose he could have been, um, but uh, he also didn't necessarily have to be. Uh, a lot of the artistic depictions that we have of Jesus' baptism, uh, for whatever they're worth, uh, often picture John simply pouring water over Jesus' head and Jesus standing in the Jordan River. Um, you know, so. Was he immersed? Maybe. Uh, but again, 
There's never a command in the scriptures that tells us that this is how baptism must be done. Um, you know, I think sometimes visually it might, um, especially when we consider in conjunction with Romans 6, we were therefore buried uh, by baptism into death. Um, you know, the idea of immersion might communicate that more clearly visually, but uh, there's no there's no explicit command from God ever on a certain way in which baptism must take place. Right. And and just again, to make the point that, that when we read about Jesus' baptism, the first thing that we want to keep in mind is that this is something Jesus is doing for us as a part of his working out of our salvation. It's it's not something first and foremost that is intended as a command, as a law, as something that we must do following after him. As, as you pointed out, the, the command for Christian baptism is going to come at the end of Matthew's gospel. Right here, Jesus is working, fulfilling all righteousness for us. And, and we want to keep the emphasis there that, that is, this is an account of Jesus doing something for our salvation, not something where he's primarily showing us how to live, what to do, but rather something where he is putting himself in the place of sinners. I don't think we really talked too much about that, did we, Pastor Vandercook? We, we said that that this is the place where, where sinners were going. Well, why does Jesus go there? Because he comes to do precisely that. He comes to go where sinners go. Is that a fair way of, of preaching Jesus' baptism? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we, you're right. We did kind of skip over that. And that's that's what's going on. Yeah, he's identifying himself with with sinners, not because he is a sinner, but because that's where he, that's what he came to do. And ultimately, he will suffer the wrath of God for sinners because he's put himself in that place. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. That's that's what we have going on is that he goes to the place where the sinners are going because uh, he's putting himself in their place, taking their place. And so having accomplished that, verse 16, he was baptized then, immediately he goes up from the water, and then Matthew draws our attention to what happens next. Behold, he uses this, this word behold, he draws our attention, look, pay attention to this. What what happens, Pastor Vandercook, after Jesus' baptism that Matthew wants us to pay attention to? Yeah, we get this, uh, this theophany, uh, you know, which is a fancy word that means, uh, you know, a place where God is revealed. Um and uh, it, uh, it, it, it reveals really to us the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all in one shot in that whole thing. Um, the Spirit descending from heaven, the voice of God speaking, the heavens opened, uh, and so forth. Uh, yeah, so we get, that, we get that appearance of God that, that acknowledges that, hey, this is the one. This is the one that was sent, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and really initiates as we said earlier, Jesus' ministry as the Son of God sent to be the Savior. So so take us into the various things that happened then. The, first, the heavens were opened, so the the sky splits. There's there's Old Testament connections to be made there. Rend the heavens and come down, uh, I think it's Isaiah 64. Then you've got the Spirit of God descending like a dove. That seems pretty important, Pastor Vandercook, that the Spirit of God would come down and the connection to, to baptism. Take take us into those those two items. Yeah, you have the you know, of course the the heavens opening where uh, you know it's it, it's God making His presence uh, known and appearance known among His people, and in this case, making it known uh, through His Son Jesus Christ, uh, and then the dove. Uh, and you know, I I, I didn't put this, uh, I, I didn't think about this too terribly much uh, today. I didn't have, didn't have didn't get to it much, but. Uh, uh, we do have the the tie into Noah's Ark there too. Uh, you know that Noah sends out the dove, and it's a sign that uh, God's wrath at that point in time uh, against humanity, bringing that that worldwide destructive flood, that that wrath is now ended, that the time of judgment is ended, and now with the Holy Spirit descending on His Son Jesus Christ, we see the salvation again of the world unfolding in Him. Uh, you know, of course, it's it's the Holy Spirit there. The dove, the the dove back that Noah sent out was not uh, was not the Holy Spirit, but but still, uh, in the same way, we have this idea of um, uh, the dove being this the symbol of peace, the symbol of peace between God and man, and that peace between God and man that comes in Christ Jesus is delivered to us by the Holy Spirit. 
So the Spirit then descends on Jesus, rests on him, and then what about the, the Father's voice? Yeah, you know, he says, uh, this is my son uh, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when you look at that. At first, in Matthew's account, anyway, uh, if, you, if you didn't have the rest of the scriptures to kind of add some details to this, you would think that Jesus was the only one that saw the heavens open, Jesus was the only one that heard the voice, and Jesus was the only one that saw the, um, that saw the dove descend. Um, uh, but, you know, later on, we find out that John, at least, saw all this stuff happen because uh, it's, it's in John's, in not, not the same John, but the Apostle John writes in his gospel that, uh, uh, you know, that, um, that John saw the Spirit descend. He heard the voice of God and everything else. So uh, we see the, we see that the, um, uh, you know, that this, this is a marker that, Hey, this is the this is the one. This is the promised one, uh, and there is a distinction to be made there. It's a, a you know, quoting from looking from a, a Chrysostom again. Uh, he writes that all people there heard the voice and saw the dove uh, rest on Jesus, and that separates him from John the Baptist, uh, which is which is significant because there is a lot of confusion when John the Baptist comes in that maybe this guy is the Messiah because they see the way that he preaches. Uh, they, he seems to fit their definition of what the Messiah should be. He's the son of a priest. He was had a miraculous birth. His mother was barren prior to his birth. Uh, and you, you contrast that with Jesus, who is, I mean, largely anonymous up until this point. Um, he, you know, Jesus was born of a of a of this. Uh, of Joseph and Mary, they they suppose they don't know they don't know anything about the virgin birth. Nobody knows anything about that, uh, aside from Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, really. Um, so it, there's this. Uh, uh, so so John the Baptist is probably kind of seen as maybe this is the one. And even whenever the first couple things happen, with the heavens opening, you have the the voice or um, the heavens opening when the dove descends. It descends clearly on Jesus. So this distinguishes, hey, this is the one. This is the one you should pay attention to. And then the voice confirms it. This is the Son of God. And we'll hear that voice come out again, uh, almost word for word. In fact, word for word, with the exception of a little bit at the end, uh, at the uh, Transfiguration in uh, Matthew 17, where you know um, Peter, James, and John are there with Jesus, and they, the the instructive is added to the end of it. Listen to him there. But other than that, the exact same thing is said. So you kind of have this thing, almost kind of bookending uh, Jesus' ministry here, this idea of this confirmation from God once again, this is my son. So to, to talk a little bit more about the Spirit descending on Jesus, I, I know I often, I know this happens here at Jesus Baptism, the Spirit descends on him, and, and we'll hear in tomorrow's text that the Spirit then leads Jesus into the wilderness. So, but I think sometimes we just sort of, we think about the Gospels and we think of, of Jesus just going and doing what he needs to do. He, he lives, he dies, he rises, and, and it's Jesus. But, but the Spirit is active with Jesus in all of this. What, what is the Spirit's role in Jesus' ministry that we see, it seems, in some sense, I don't know if beginning is the right way. I mean, the Holy Spirit's the one who, who caused the conception. But, but it seems like there's, there's something that happens here with the Spirit descending on Jesus that's a, a key moment in his ministry. What's, what's going on there, Pastor Vandercook? Yeah, I mean, the Holy Spirit is, is all over the place in this thing. And even before that, I mean, the Holy Spirit is active even in the ministry of John the Baptist, because right. uh, anywhere God's Word is preached, that's where the Spirit is active. And that's what John the Baptist, of course, is doing as well. Um, but you have the the um, uh, the Holy Spirit here being the equipper uh, to for Jesus to endure the the humiliation that he's going to suffer and so forth as he goes throughout his ministry. Um, uh, and it's it's like we said earlier. Again, this is kind of a marker. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is what um, begins this uh, his his public ministry. Um, that, that separates really the 30 years that came before this, not to say that Jesus was any less God before, uh, but now the Holy Spirit is there uh, assisting him in the work, working with him in this whole thing. And then what about, 
what the father actually says to Jesus, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Why, why at this moment? I think about those times when I, as a father, tell my sons, great job, son. They tend to be a bit more glorious moments than say, well, Jesus is being baptized. He went down to the water with a bunch of sinners. What, <laughs> why, why at this moment do, does this amazing theophany happen, and, and why does the Father use these words? Yeah, you know, um, um, to be honest, I didn't, I didn't think about that much about the fact. But you're, but you're right. It doesn't seem like he's done a whole lot uh, to be well pleased with. You would think that would come at the end of his ministry, perhaps, rather than. Uh, right here, because, you know, that's the whole, you know, when, when Jesus uh, um, gives up his life on the cross, the Father is satisfied with that sacrifice. Um, so there's probably a little bit of looking forward there, I would suppose, that that that, uh, that God is satisfied with his Son and knows that he will continue to be satisfied with him. Um, but, um, but to be honest, I didn't give that much thought or, or look at that very much. Uh, but again, you know, he's the Son of God. Uh, and so, um, while we can look at uh, uh, look at our own children, and you know we're not always very pleased with them <laughs> because they they maybe don't do things that we like that much, or they uh, uh, or they disobey us in some way. Uh, the same, of course, would not be true for Jesus. He's always faithful, and uh, so he would always be pleasing to his Father in that sense, I suppose. I think I think what you said about the connection of, of looking forward to the cross, that's that's where my mind goes as well. That the reason that the father is well pleased with his son at this particular moment is is because he has here come and done exactly what he's supposed to do. He's he's there fulfilling all righteousness. He's stepping in the place of sinners, which gets fulfilled then at the cross. And so at this moment, I mean the baptism of Jesus is while it only gets what, five verses here, 13 through 17 in Matthew's gospel, it gets even less in, in Mark. I think it's just one verse in Mark. It, it's a key moment in his ministry because it's pointing us forward to the cross. And it, even though it maybe seems insignificant, the fact that the Spirit descends on Jesus at this moment, the Father's voice speaks up, this is, we need to pay attention to what, what's here for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, Pastor Vandercook, we, we've talked about Jesus' baptism, and, and we've, throughout the conversation, we've been talking about Christian baptism as well. And, and there's, there's clearly a connection that, that we should make. What, what's the connection? I mean, how does Jesus' baptism relate to what we do as baptism as Christians today? Yeah. Um, first, first of all, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Gibbs and his his commentary on Matthew makes it uh, um, makes this you know cautions us against moving too quickly from Jesus baptism to Christian baptism. Sometimes maybe we're a little guilty of that of not letting that uh, the narrative of Jesus baptism and what exactly is happening there, um, and really unpacking that before we move on to talk about how it applies to. Uh, uh, Christian baptism, but but certainly there is a tie in there, and I think it's really clearly expressed when you look at um, like Luther's flood prayer that's now part of our our, our rite of holy baptism, and, and this line in particular: "Through the baptism in the Jordan of your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, you sanctified and instituted all waters to be a blessed flood and a lavish washing away of sin." I mean, right there, he's tying the two things uh, together, and he's doing the same thing that. Um, um, uh, you know, Ignatius did the same thing in his writing, St. Ignatius did, um, that uh, uh, Jesus was born and baptized, and by his passion, that by his passion he might purify the water. Uh, now, what that adds is that this purification of the water of holy baptism, or the way in which Jesus sanctifies the water of holy baptism, really is not complete until, uh, you know, the de- his death and resurrection. Um and there, there's a hymn, uh, well, we've got lots of hymns that talk about this in the church, lots of great hymns, but uh, um, from God the Father, virgin born, uh, this hymn really illustrates this well. From God the Father, virgin born, to us the only Son came down, by death the font to consecrate, the faithful to regenerate. That, that points out that really, ultimately, the... Um, uh, the water of holy baptism is not consecrated 
only by Christ's uh, baptism, by Jesus' baptism, but really by the entire work of salvation he does. Uh, by death, the font to, to consecrate, as that line uh, pointed out. So, yeah, I mean, you have this idea of the, um, uh, the, the Jesus' baptism sanctifies the waters of holy baptism, that uh, uh, it does that, but that that sanctification can't really be complete until all Jesus' work is complete, until, uh, you know, he says it is finished from the cross. Mm. So his baptism is a part of his full work of our salvation, his full work of standing in the place of sinners, doing what we were unable to do, bearing the penalty that we deserved, dying on the cross. His baptism is a part of all of that. And because of that, then his baptism makes those waters of baptism today holy. One of the ways, and I think, I don't, I don't know exactly where this comes from, Pastor Bender. I, I want to say it's from a, a sermon of, of Luther's where, where he pictures Jesus going into the water and he leaves himself there and takes our sins out so that when we go oh, into the water, yeah. <laughs> we leave our sins there and we take him out. Some, something that, but as you said, it, it only, it, it works that way, not just because of Jesus baptism, but because of his baptism is a, a part of his entire saving work, including his, his death and resurrection. Yeah. I, I'd love to take credit for that, but I, I'm, I know I didn't come up with that on my own. I'm pretty sure I, I got it from Luther somewhere along the way. Yeah, so, that makes sense. So, I've taught something similar whenever I've I've taught uh, in catechesis. I've taught uh, I've taught uh, I've taught my classes that 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 Jesus baptism, almost that exact same thing. And I had no idea where it came from. So it's good to have a name to stick to it. Finally, <laughs> whether it's you well, or Luther. So that's well, yeah. No, don't don't put my put put Luther's name on it. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, yeah. So so with with that setup, then that this is how we get from Jesus baptism then to. Christian baptism, what 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 we have as Christians today, what I mean, uh, this we've got five and a half minutes here, Pastor Vandercook and Lutheran pastors, in my experience, can talk for a long time about baptism. So yeah. give us give us five minutes or so on on Christian baptism. Why why is this matter of baptism so important? Well, it's the you know as as we talked about earlier, really, this you know we talked about it right from the outset. We talked about the significance of the Jordan River. The Jordan River was the entrance point for God's people of Israel coming into the Promised Land. Our baptism is our entrance into the Promised Land, if you will. I'm, I'm using air quotes there. Uh, it's our entrance into salvation. Uh, it's where we come into. Uh, to, to borrow the, the language from Luther's flood prayer, uh, once again, the, the arc of the Christian church. Um, in fact, a lot of churches, one of, my, one of the two congregations I serve, in fact, does this. We have the baptismal font right inside the door of the sanctuary to remind us, this is how you came into this thing. This is how you came into the church. This is how you came into the place where you continue to be fed and nourished by God's word and sacraments. Uh, by the the milk and honey, if you will, uh, that's there for us, uh, and you know, so there there's all kinds of incredible imagery we have there. But that that is the fact that baptism is our uh, entrance into that. And so, um, just as crossing the Jordan, which is also where John was John ministered and where Jesus was baptized, just as that led Israel into the Promised Land, the waters of holy baptism serve as our entrance into the Promised Land uh, of salvation. So. Um, you know, again, and another, uh, I, I'll quote another hymn, uh, stanza four of Luther's uh, baptismal hymn, uh, To Jordan came the Christ our Lord. There stood the Son of God in love, his grace to us extending, the Holy Spirit like a dove upon the scene descending, the triune God assuring us with promises compelling that in our baptism he will thus among us find a dwelling to comfort and sustain us. Uh, so again, we have the Holy Spirit, really the same thing that happened to Jesus, happens, happens each and every time that uh, a Christian is baptized. The heavens are torn open, uh, and uh, the Spirit descends on the baptized, and God says to us, says to the Christian, you are my son, you are my child, with you I am well pleased. 
And of course, God is not pleased with us because of who we are, but he is pleased with us because of who Christ is, uh, because we've been now clothed in the robes of Christ's righteousness. Of course, we have so much beautiful imagery that, that communicates that. Um, but, uh, you know, this idea that uh, uh, we are now um, uh, in God's favor, uh, we now have peace between us and God uh, because of what uh, has happened there, because of God marking us as his own in holy baptism. So, uh, yeah. But, of course, there is a reality, too, that, um, you know, in context, looking again at where Jesus' baptism occurs, and what comes right after that is that Jesus is driven into the wilderness. Uh, and there is something to that as well for the Christian, that uh, we are baptized uh, which is an incredible, awesome thing, of course. Uh, but there's the reality that after our baptism, we do still have to live in the wilderness of this world. Uh, and baptism is a, is, is a daily uh, dying and rising, as we say in the catechism, that the old Adam in us is by daily contrition and repentance drowned and dies. Uh, so it's, it's this daily reminder uh, of, of, of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is the life of the Christian kind of in a nutshell. And so, yeah, baptism brings us into that, and we continue to live as as the baptized in that way. Pastor David Vandercook is the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in North Little Rock, Arkansas, and shepherd of Peace Lutheran Church in Maumelle, Arkansas, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. Pastor Vandercook, thank you so much for your time today. That's my pleasure. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. And there together in this action, they fulfilled all righteousness because Jesus came to the place where sinners were. Jesus comes to identify with sinners, to step into their shoes, to do what they could not, to live a sinless life in their place, to take their punishment upon himself when he died on the cross, to take our punishment upon himself when he died on the cross for us. And that begins here at his baptism, when he stands in the place of sinners, receives that waters of baptism, and the heavens opened, the triune God makes himself manifest to show that this is the action that is part of the plan of salvation, salvation given to you and to me that we now receive in the waters of our baptism, where we meet Jesus. He leaves himself there for us. He takes our sins and we receive his righteousness. What a joy it is to live in that baptism now and forever. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.